Uh, we are going to be talking throughout most of the spring semester, all but the last four weeks, about the life of David. And David is an icon. He's someone that even outside of Christian circles that people know about. I wrote down just a few of the things about him. He's a, a warrior. He's a musician. He's a poet. He's known as the great king. I mean, there are so many things about David's life that people have argued about whether or not he was actually a real person or if he was just like there's a so, warrior, poet, king, like our, songwriter, musician. Could these all be true? And so, but we have archaeological evidence that goes back to the fact that he truly was a real king who lived and reigned. Back in just 1993, which isn't all that long ago, they found this, which is called the House of David Stone. And when they transcribed it, it was from a pillar that was about three feet tall. When they transcribed it, they believe it was from a king in the, in the nation of Aram um, who had conquered some of David's men. And so it talks, it recounts some of his victories against the house of David. But David's a real guy, flesh and blood, but his story is fascinating. Jesus was born in David's family line. And we even, like, we know he's a real person because Matthew, if you look at the first chapter of Matthew, Matthew even goes to the trouble of listing out an entire genealogy all the way back from Jesus, back to David, back and beyond that. We, we know who his parents were, and we know the lineage that goes all the way down to Christ. Fascinating guy. Wrote about half the Psalms in the Old Testament. He sinned huge and repented huge. And he's fascinating. We're going to look at him. So tonight, every story has a beginning. Tonight, we look at the beginnings of David's story. And we ask what we can glean for them. I think there are things that Jesus wants to teach us tonight through the life of David and how it connects to him. So let me give you... A little pretext history, though, because we're talking about 3,000 years ago. Any history majors in the room? All right. You two that I can see right now are exempt. From the next 30 seconds, you can just zone out and do whatever you want mentally. This is for the rest of you guys, okay? Samuel and the nation of Israel, there were all these different prophets. Samuel was one of these. And the way that it worked in the Old Testament was usually when God had a message to deliver, he gave it to his prophet. It was the prophet's job to speak that message to the people. Usually it wasn't a popular message. It usually was, hey, people, you're messing this up big time, and God wants us to return to him. And therefore, prophets weren't usually popular people. Okay? But God would speak through them, and that was Samuel's role as a prophet of God. And all the way back in the book of 1 Samuel 8, the elders of Israel, now there had been no king, there was no political king in Israel at that time, but the elders come to Samuel and they say, we want a human king. So Samuel goes to the Lord, and he says, the people want a king. And God says, bad idea, real bad idea. If the people have a human king, I'll quote God here. This is in 1 Samuel 8, 5. It starts, he says, if you decide to have a king, he'll take your sons and send them to war. He'll take your daughters and bring them into his own service. He'll take the best of your land. He'll take the best of your animals. You will all be his slaves. Don't do this. A king will rule you harshly. You don't want a human king. The people confer. They come back to Samuel and they like, we want that anyway. We want, that sounds good to us. We would like a human king. And God tells Samuel, hey, it's not you they're rejecting, it's me. They're rejecting me in favor of a human king. And so the people choose Saul, King Saul, who is an awful human being. Do you want to know what his credentials were? Anybody know? He was tall and he was handsome. Those were the two things. <laughs> 
Tall and handsome. He was literally, the scriptures say, he was a head taller than everybody else. Literally, a head taller than everybody else. Giant dude, okay? And they looked at him and they said, that's the man that we want to be king. So they install him as king. And what happens? Exactly what God said would happen. I can't go into it because I don't have time tonight. You're interested in that. Read 1 Samuel 9 through 15 and you'll see all of the decisions that Saul made and all of the ways that what God said would come true would, okay? So, in 1 Samuel 16, God says, enough, enough. I'm putting an end to Saul's kingdom. He's done. I'll choose the next king. If you want a human king, I'll choose him this time. And so he tells Samuel, you are going to go to the house of Jesse, who, by the way, if I'm getting this right, Jesse is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz, for you Bible people in the room. And Jesse has eight kids, or eight boys, excuse me, and the youngest boy is David. So God tells Samuel, go to the house of Jesse. One of his sons will be king. I'll tell you who it is when you get there, all right? There's all your backstory. We finally get to the place in the story then where Samuel arrives at Jesse's house to pick the king. So when they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab. That's Jesse's oldest boy. And he thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't judge by his appearance or height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way that you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward and walk in front of Samuel, okay? Son number two, right? But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned Shemiah, but Samuel said, neither is this the one that the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. He knows. He knows. And then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? I mean, he has been through seven. That's a lot. Okay, I have five sons. That's a lot of sons. He's got three up on me at this point. Okay, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse replied. He didn't even invite him. He didn't invite him to the party. He's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We'll not sit down to eat until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. This is David, by the way. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. Okay, let me pause right there for just a second. And talk about why this matters, that he's dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. From the beginning, why did they choose Saul? Because Saul was handsome. He was super tall. He was the guy that everybody was looking to and saying, that's the warrior that we want. When Samuel gets there, do you notice that he sees the same thing in Eliab? He says, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And God says, "Uh uh-uh, careful. We're not doing that again. We're not doing that again. I'm looking for something different. Now, when it says that David was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes, I want you to know that the picture that that this is trying to, to portray right now is not giant warrior like Saul, giant warrior Uh, like Eliab. It's kid. Cute, big-eyed, handsome kid. That's the picture. As a matter of fact, when David uh, confronts Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, 42, it says Goliath looked at him and saw that he was a little boy, ruddy and handsome. What's the name of the uh, actor who plays Thor? Is that Chris Hemsworth? Okay. Saul is Chris Hemsworth. Okay. He's got those muscles on the side that I don't even know what they are. Okay. That's Saul. No question. 
Who plays Spider-Man? Tom Holland. That's David. Okay? And some of you are like, oh, he's, he's handsome. Exactly. Little boy handsome. Okay? David is out. This is exactly what we're talking about here. It's not that he's bad looking. It's that he doesn't look like Thor. Okay? And this is not the guy that they were looking for in terms of the warrior who will lead their country right now. We are talking about big-eyed, beautiful little child who was just out watching sheep. They didn't even bother inviting him to the party where they were choosing the king. All right, end of my interruption. Let's finish the story. And the Lord said, this is the one. Anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of the oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. And then Samuel returned to Ramah. This is the beginning, you guys, of David's story. I want you to notice that history almost repeats itself. Samuel was the one that saw how much of a train wreck Saul's kingdom was, and yet the moment that Eliab was walked out in front of him, what does he do? He looks at him and he's like, surely that's the one. That's the Lord's anointed. And God has to tap him on the shoulder and be like, haven't we just been through this? I'm not looking at the same things you're looking at. I'm looking on the inside right now. Why are we so quick, you guys? Why are we so quick to look at someone's outer appearance, the way that they conduct themselves, the image that you decide to portray to me? Why are we so quick to grab onto that and assign value to that, to worship that? You say worship's a strong word? I think it might apply. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book just two, three years ago called Talking to Strangers. He talked in that whole book about how terrible we are at, number one, developing quick judgments about people based on appearance, and two, how we stick to those quick judgments on appearance for a very, very, very long time. His entire book is about that. Why are we so prone to worshiping people based on their externals? We worship political leaders. In the church, we create celebrity pastors. We put people on pedestals. We worship boyfriends and girlfriends and influencers. You guys, we are obsessed with the famous and the beautiful. Obsessed with it. We say, I want to be, be my own person. I define me. I define who I am. But the way we behave betrays what we really believe. That we want that value to come from other people and we want to assign that value to other people ourselves based on externals. God has a different view. <clears throat> I will tell you, too, this is why Jesus wasn't recognized. They thought that Jesus was going to come in as Chris Hemsworth with a sword, that he was going to take Rome down with one hand. That's what the Jews thought the Messiah would do. But he came as a suffering servant. The religious people didn't recognize that. This was the verse in the middle of the text that we just read. The Lord doesn't see things the way that you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Well, if the Lord looks at the heart, we should know what that word means. What does it mean that he's looking at the heart? What does this word heart mean? You realize in our culture, um, oh goodness, we have lots of idioms for this. Like we, we think about the mind as the logical center, right? This is where I make my rational decisions. My heart is my emotion base. And if I talk about, oh, if I talk about my spine, or my guts. That's like my courage and my will, right? We think of our, our spiritual life as almost disembodied. There's nothing attached to that. But that's new. Every culture in different times has seen those things differently. 
And I'll tell you this, 3,000 years ago when this is written, they didn't view the heart as just the emotion center of our body, okay? They saw it a little bit differently. So if you look at this Hebrew word, I'll step out of the way for it. The Hebrew word is labab. It's fun to say, labab. Notice the definition here. It refers to the will, the mind, the consciousness, emotions, understanding, moral character, determination, knowledge, memory, and reflection. The only way I even know to sum all of that up is what I've got below there, your entire inner self, your inner world, is what the Hebrew people would have called your heart. So when we look at this passage and God is saying, hey, the Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What he's talking about is your will, your mind, your consciousness, your emotions, your understanding, your moral character, all of that stuff that comes into how you make decisions. That inner person, your character, what drives all your motives, that's what the Lord's looking at. When he's looking for leaders, that's what he wants to see. Why does that matter to you? Well, because you have some decisions to make, too, about who you trust. Because you have some decisions to make, too, about who you are and how all of those things work together. So first of all, let's talk about what it means to have a manicured self. You guys know exactly, this is, this is an old sin, it's not new, but social media has made this so easy for us to think about. There is the self that you present to other people, and then you're, there's your inner self. We even have multiple layers of that, right? The Finsta, you know, you, got, you could decide that you have this layer and this layer and this layer and then my inner self. So you choose the you that you want to, to see me through. And I can manicure my image on nine different levels and I can show you the, the you that you want to see. You guys, part of following Jesus is the freedom of just letting that stuff fall to the ground. and that I know that Jesus is working on transforming me. That means I don't have anything to prove to you tonight. It means that I don't have to pretend I'm more spiritual than I am. It means that I don't have to stand up here, here in front of you and, and feel like a fraud, because I am one. <laughs> like that, that's the beauty of it, is that when I know that I am a sinner, saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, that he is slowly but surely transforming me and cleaning me from the inside out, I don't have to pretend with you anymore. I don't have to feel bad about admitting to you that I'm a sinner, that I, I think wrong things and I do wrong things and I have to apologize to my kids. It's like I, I can be broken and be a vessel for his use without being a hypocrite because I'm being rescued by the grace of Jesus Christ. I can throw away that idea of manicured self, of a dissonance between my inner world and my outer world. I don't have to think like that anymore. You're familiar with the manicured self. But there are two cautions I want to give you tonight on this idea of manicured self. First, of, I've already said it. Christ has freed us from this image management of having to pretend that we're something that we aren't. Those of you who are living multiple yous, probably, I'm guessing, don't like most of them. And when you lay your head on your pillow and God has a chance to speak, you need to hear those voices that come to you and say, this is who you really are in me. And there's a freedom from having hypocritically, which is, that's what the view of the church is, right? That we're living hypocritical lives. Break that stereotype by saying, I am a sinner who's rescued by the grace and the love of Jesus Christ, transforming me slowly from the inside out. 
How do I begin that process? I do the opposite. Instead of elevating myself, I let God do it. James is the one who said it. He said, humble yourself and the Lord will lift you up. How is it phrased exactly? I've lost it. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. James 4.10. Instead of elevating yourself in the sight of everyone, humble yourself. Humble yourself. Let the Lord be the one who chooses when you get elevated. Let him be the one who's in charge of the timing. And next, come to terms with your identity in Christ, that that's who you are. See, who are we as followers of Jesus in this room? I hope that your reputation even out on campus is not, oh, encounter. Man, that's a group of people who are pretending like they've got it all together. If they, I, I went there and I felt like everybody's judging me. Man, if that's the case, then we are not being open about how the love of Christ is breaking us and redeeming us and freeing us from those things in the past. I am not who I used to be, praise Jesus, but I have not yet arrived, praise Jesus. And it's a beautiful thing that Paul, even the Apostle Paul, was able to say, and I don't think this is pride, he was able to say, hey, follow me as I follow Christ. But he was also the person who said, I am the worst of all sinners. Isn't that beautiful? What a paradox in the faith that we can say both of those things together. I am chasing Jesus, come follow me. And by the way, I am the chief of sinners. And I need the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Second lesson, I need to be cautious about who I give authority to. Because we live in a world where the inner self and the outer self, there's a wide difference between those two. You guys, you are giving authority out whether you like it or not. It's happening all the time. Okay, we have to choose our pastors and our elders and our mentors. There should be people in your life that have authority over you. Authority is a good thing. Who's going to mentor you? Who's going to lead you along? What books are you reading? What podcasts are you listening to? You are giving those people authority in your life. Who are you dating? Who are you going to marry? That person has authority in your life. So if what you are looking at is the outer self to do that, and not that giant list of the inner self that I just had there, you are missing the boat. Who you lend authority in your life matters deeply. Even spiritually. It's not just about spiritual externals. It's not just about spiritual giftings. It's not just about how passionately somebody worships or how much they can talk about the Bible. You guys, Jesus himself said in Matthew 7 that in the end there will be people who come to him and say, hey, by the way, I performed miracles and I drove out demons in your name. And I perform wonders. And he'll say, I, didn't, I don't know who you are. That should freak you out. Okay? Because looking at the externals of what that person was doing spiritually, you'd be like, that person's a spiritual hero. They're a spiritual giant. And God says, I don't look at things the same way you do. I look at the inside. Well, then how are we supposed to know? Jesus says that too. Same passage, Matthew 7. He says, you recognize them by their fruit. What's that mean, Van? Good question. Paul spells it out for us in Galatians 5. Look at this screen for just a little while. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Who should you marry? That. Who should have authority in your life? That. Who should you read books 
That should be the author right there. What podcast should you listen to? People who speak with this voice. You say, oh, Ben, nobody's that all the time. You're right. You're right. Nobody's patient all the time. Nobody has self-control all the time. But is your life characterized by this? This is what the life led by the Holy Spirit looks like. So some, somebody comes to me with all the gifts in the world. You guys, I'm not impressed until I know their fruit. Somebody brilliant walks through the door who knows 20 times more Bible than I will never know. I'm not impressed. They do not have a voice of authority in my life until I'm able to see this. Are they loving? The Holy Spirit will create loving people. If I do not see love in them, they are not following God. If I do not see patience consistently in their lives, if they're leaving a train wreck of broken relationships behind them, I will not let them have authority in my life. I have pastors who speak over me. I have elders who speak over me. I have board members who speak over me. Do you want to know who those people are? They look like this. And when those people come to me and say, hey, Ben, I have a problem with something you're doing, you guys, I will listen <laughs> because I trust this. I trust the voices of self-control and love and patience. This is who we strive to be, and this is the kind of authority that's good to put ourselves under. Isn't it beautiful that Jesus listed this out for us? I mean, he says that by their fruit, you will recognize them. Paul's the one who actually spells it out. But isn't it cool that we have an instruction book to follow in this? You don't have to wander around just being confused by the externals that you see in people and structures and everything around you. You're given this instruction to say, no, 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 no. Look for love. Look for joy. Look for peace. Look for patience. I could keep going. I'll let that one lie. I want you to come back to that later in, that week, in this, this week, though. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, that's a good list. One other piece, though, that I want to cover here, and that's David's anointing. Because in verse 13, Samuel anoints David with oil, and the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon David from that moment forward. Uh, the word for spirit is ruach in the Hebrew. literally means God's breath or wind. The Holy Spirit is around in the Old Testament. It just doesn't look quite the same. He's there very early. Genesis 1-2, the second verse in the Bible, the Holy Spirit's right there helping with the creation of the world. But in the Old Testament, you guys, it's super interesting that the Holy Spirit was a rare occurrence. A few prophets were given the Holy Spirit for temporary moments. Saul, King Saul, was given an anointing of the Spirit for a while, and then it was removed. We see in our passage uh, tonight that David was given an anointing of the Holy Spirit. But it was different. I mean, for example, I picture, you know, this, this old Jewish grandpa sitting around with his child and being like, when I was a kid, I heard Ezekiel the prophet preach, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and his grandkids would be like, ah, seriously? You were there when that happened? And he'd be like, I was there. I was there when the Holy Spirit was speaking through Ezekiel. It was that kind of an occurrence. It wasn't common. Maybe once in a generation. It's not the same way it is in the New Testament. For us, when Jesus was, was actually giving his dying words, when he had his last moments with the disciples, he talked to the, I'm, I'm talking John 13 through John 17, one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. And when he's talking with his disciples, he keeps saying over and over and over the same thing. He says, I have to go away, but I'm not leaving you alone. I'm sending you a helper the promised Holy Spirit. He says it over and over again. 
That's John 16, 7 there, just one of the occurrences. But in fact, it's best for you that I go away, he tells the disciples. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. But if I do go away, then I will send him to you. He's like, the Holy Spirit's going to come. This is new in the New Testament. This is our age, the age of the church. Jesus is saying there's going to be something new that happens. I'm sending an advocate, the Holy Spirit. And the rest of the New Testament, I just gave you three verses, but it's all over the place. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Paul tells the church in Corinth. Paul says to the Romans, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives inside of you. Ephesians 1.13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Don't get lost in the language there. All it's saying is the Holy Spirit is ours. So what happened once in a generation in the Old Testament now is a gift to every New Testament believer. God says, I'm going to infuse you with the Holy Spirit. Why does that matter? Because all the stuff that we were just talking about, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, you don't have to manufacture it. That's a work that the Holy Spirit is doing in you. You surrender your life and the Holy Spirit's like, stand back. Because I'm going to create a kind of loving individual in you that you didn't know was possible. And you're going to find something in you that's ugly and that doesn't belong, and the Holy Spirit's like, nope, we got to get rid of that. And you'll lay that down on the altar, and, and the Holy Spirit's like, all right, let's go. Now you, you have a level of patience that you didn't have yesterday. So not only is Jesus showing us the path with that, he's also given us the mechanism that does it. I just want to encourage you guys tonight. God has paved the way for us as new creations. We don't have to pretend we're something we're not. We just have to lean into the work that he wants to do. And that is where we're headed this semester. You guys, I'm blown away. Every week that we have where we'll be looking at the life of David, I promise it'll apply. It's 3,000 years old. He's a guy who lived 3,000 years ago, and yet stuff that you're walking through tomorrow will matter based on what we look at in his life. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for giving us the life of David. Thank you for us being able to plainly see his flaws, that in this version of history, it is not erased. It's not erased. His flaws are on display for all to see. And I'm grateful for that because I resonate with it, God. Thank you, Christ, that you have freed us from having to manicure our own appearance, creating multiple versions of ourselves for other people to see or approve of. God, thank you for a different path altogether. Thank you that you see past that stuff and that you really see what's inside for energizing us with your Holy Spirit who can create that kind of change. God, you didn't just give us a vision for it. You gave us the ability to get there through your Holy Spirit. So I pray that you would help us live as empowered people with different and spiritual eyes, Christ. And I pray that this campus would be changed this spring because of that, Father. Not because of us, but because of what you can do. Not by the power of our hands or our planning or our ideas, but Jesus, by the fact that the same spirit that raised you from the dead lives in your people in this room. Transform this place, Jesus. We pray this in your name and through your sacrifice, Christ.